Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn why a psychosomatic illness in New York got worse after it was labeled as mass hysteria with neurologist Suzanne O'Sullivan. Then we'll, like, answer a listener question about why we say like. And you'll learn why we see beautiful things as having more moral worth. Let's satisfy some curiosity. About a decade ago, girls at a high school in New York began suffering from mysterious symptoms. No one could figure out why, but the symptoms were spreading. There was a media frenzy, but just as quickly, all that attention died down. So, what actually happened to those girls? Well, Suzanne O'Sullivan is back to tell us all about it. She's a neurologist and science writer who has just published her latest book, The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness. Here's what she had to say about this bout of so-called mass hysteria. Yeah, so I mean, this is really sort of quite a quintessential story of what is often reported as, as mass hysteria. So what happened is, was at the end of 2011, some schoolgirls in upstate New York, all in the same school in a place called Leroy, started getting sort of tick-like symptoms, so just twitching, basically. It was contained in the first instance within a single friendship group. And obviously they had access to good medical care. So they saw their local neurologist and they were told that they had what neurologists call a psychosomatic disorder is a conversion disorder. So it's quite a Freudian term. I'm not sure I agree with it. It refers to converting stress into physical symptoms. But they were given a diagnosis of a psychosomatic disorder under one of its many names. And in the first instance, that seemed to be containing the problem. However, psychosomatic disorders tend to raise suspicions in people. You know, for the reasons we've already sort of touched on, people think that um, they don't really believe in the reality of them. How could that really happen? It just seems too much for people to believe. So that raised doubts in some of the family's minds. And there was a, a big meeting between authorities and family members where because of sort of privacy issues, et cetera, the full diagnosis couldn't be told to everybody. And that sort of, again, you've got the situation of something being withheld, which made suspicions even higher. And once the suspicion that there was a wrong diagnosis and that information was being withheld went around the school and people became convinced that this conversion disorder diagnosis couldn't be right and the tick-like symptoms began spreading further throughout the school. It started within one friendship group and then spread to within the school about 18 pupils and then to a couple of people outside the school. Now, the interesting thing was, you know, the Western world being the Western world, this caught the attention of the media and the young women and their parents went on television shows and pleaded for answers. And this really sort of added to the stress and difficulty around that was happening within the school and the girls' symptoms got bigger. They went from being just tick-like symptoms into full seizures. That led ultimately to the involvement of, you know, celebrity sort of investigator Erin Brockovich got involved in this because she was convinced that having received some information from the town that it may have been caused by a train wreck that had caused a poison spillage somewhere near the school. This sort of heightened the whole situation. So, these sort of physical symptoms that spread through schools are actually really common and they usually come and go in a, in a flash. But all of the media furore surrounding this dragged it on actually for a couple of years. And it was only when the doctors, I think, kind of got things under control and said, no more media, that the girls recovered 
And I'm happy to say that with the withdrawal of all the sort of media and the excitement and the stress, the, the outcome was excellent because most of the girls are now perfectly well. It is amazing what massive effects our brains can have on our bodies. Again, that was Susanna O'Sullivan, a neurologist and science writer who has just published her latest book, The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness. You can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. We got a listener question from Kitty in San Francisco who writes, I'm wondering if you like could like talk about why like we adopt these like verbal tics and like if we could like train ourselves to like not like do that. Great question, Kitty, even if it was very difficult to read out loud. Woo, I did it. So like what you call verbal tics, linguists call filler words. And it's not just you who use them. In 2014, the linguist Mark Lieberman analyzed a huge database of spoken language and found that the words um or uh make up one in every 60 words we say. That's basically two to three ums a minute. But here's the thing. Fillers like um, uh, like, so, I mean, and you know, they actually serve a purpose. A lot of purposes, in fact. The biggest thing they do is kill time before you come up with your next thought. Because conversations are completely improvised. You don't know how long each person will talk or what you'll talk about. So you need traffic signals to keep everyone aware of who has the floor. Words like um and like let people know that you haven't finished your thought and you're just thinking about what you'll say next. But these words also do a lot of other things. They can soften criticism like this. You've got uh, something in your teeth. They can ease into delicate topics like this. Did you, you know, talk to your boss? They let you signal how certain you are about something like this. He must have been going like 100 miles an hour. And they help you to emphasize what you're about to say like this. It was like the greatest sandwich I have ever had in my life. But yes, some people do think that filler words can make you sound less intelligent or credible. So while they do serve a purpose, it's still a good idea to keep them to a minimum in scenarios when you want to put your best foot forward, like when public speaking or giving an interview. Luckily, these are circumstances when you won't be interrupted, so you can use silence. And you can often plan what you'll say so you can find other ways to soften and emphasize your words. One way to reduce these fillers is to slow down your speaking to give yourself time to think and give the audience time to comprehend your words. It may also help to record yourself talking and listen back to it regularly so you can really know what kind of habits you need to break. Good luck and thanks for your question. If you have a question, send it in to curiosity at discovery.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. The perception of beauty is more than just aesthetic. In a recent series of studies, researchers found that we tend to see beautiful things as having greater moral standing, and that makes us more likely to protect them. And by moral standing, the researchers mean how much we see something as mattering to the world for its own sake. Previous research has shown that people tend to judge things with a mind and emotions as having greater moral standing. Studies have also found that beauty plays a part in these judgments, at least with animals and people. 
But these scientists wanted to find out if beauty affected our judgments of not only sentient beings, but also inanimate objects. After all, they don't have a mind or emotions, but they do have beauty. So the team performed a series of studies that peered into the minds of 1,600 people. They asked the participants to rate animals, buildings, and natural environments by how beautiful or ugly the thing was, how much it made them think of something pure, and how much they wanted to protect it. Unsurprisingly, the participants were more likely to protect what's pretty, regardless of whether it was a sentient creature like a butterfly or an inanimate object like a building. But the beauty ratings weren't directly tied to this desire to protect. Instead, participants rated prettier things as being more pure than ugly things, and that gave them more moral standing and more reason for protection. When it comes to endangered species, it's no wonder organizations like the World Wildlife Fund lean into aesthetically pleasing species like polar bears and monarch butterflies, and not the northern bald ibis, which is a bird that looks like the baby of a turkey vulture and a flamingo. Protecting the territories of charismatic species is often assumed to have the trickle-down effect of protecting less charismatic species. But a study in 2000 found otherwise. That study focused on Africa's big five charismatic megafauna. That is, lions, leopards, buffalo, elephants, and rhinos. And it found that the areas set aside to protect those species... Yeah, they failed to protect African biodiversity any better than if you protected the same amount of space at random. While focusing on a species' beauty can be a valuable conservation strategy, it's important to remember that something doesn't need to be beautiful to have value. Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you'll hear next week on Curiosity Daily. Next week, you'll learn about how likes and shares push people to express moral outrage, the mystery of the Milky Way's broken arm, how placebo buttons give us illusions of control, why the brain in your gut may have evolved before the brain in your head, and more. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today. Starting with the fact that in 2011, schoolgirls in upstate New York started experiencing symptoms that began to spread around. After intense media exposure, those symptoms became even more severe. But once the media circus was over, the girls recovered. Suzanne O'Sullivan says that it's actually pretty common for physical symptoms to spread through schools like this, but the added stress and excitement made things worse for a while. There's a lot of work to be done to help people understand psychosomatic illnesses. Hopefully this conversation helped you learn that they're just as real as any other illness. We also learned that words like, um... Uh, like, so, I mean, and, you know, are what linguists call filler words. And they actually serve a purpose. They can let conversation partners know that you're not done with your thoughts. And they can soften criticism or delicate topics. They can signal your certainty. And they can provide emphasis. If you want to cut down on them, try slowing down your speech and maybe recording yourself so you can hear where you're slipping up. And for longtime listeners... If any of this sounds familiar, we did discuss the word like specifically on an episode of our show a little over two years ago, but we wanted to revisit it so that Ashley had an opportunity to talk about many different language filler words and other aspects of why and how we use them because our understanding has evolved, which is pretty cool. Yeah. One thing that I learned when responding to this question was that 
that linguist that saw that we say um a whole lot during our speech, they also found that women are much more likely to say um and men are much more likely to say uh. I have no idea why that is, but now I'm going to listen for it every time. (laughs) That's very weird. (laughs) But also, I do just want to say that I edited the Suzanne O'Sullivan interview and she says she doesn't say um or uh. She says M, which I found very charming. It's an Irish thing. Yeah, totally. And it's the best. It's the best. I spent a week in Ireland in 2007. And when I got back, I said M for a while. <laughs> nice. And there are other countries where they say M and other ones where they say E. So anyway, there are cultural differences. Um, uh, E, M, etc. But we all do it. Everyone in the world. Nothing to feel bad about. I bet you have a lot to say about the uses of these filler words, right? Because when editing a podcast... Sometimes some editors have the um, have the urge to remove every single filler word from an interview. But that can be a mistake because these filler words have such a purpose, right? You just said, um, by the way. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah, there was an early episode of the Curiosity podcast, the full length one, where one of our guests said, you know, At the beginning or end of every single thought he had. And I manually removed them all because if we had run that as it was, it would have not been okay. Totally. Sometimes something is hard to listen to when you hear it too many times. In that case, it was just a constant crutch. There are other times, as you mentioned, where like, for example, is used for different purposes. There was actually an episode where you used it a handful of times in a short period. And I got an email about it, kind of criticizing me for not cutting them out. But I listened back and I, w- I was like, see, I just did it. Yeah, we now use it to mean say also. I was like means I said. Right, exactly. And in this particular case, you had used the term like to emphasize in a couple of the cases, but in other cases you were using it more as like, just see, I just did it. It's going to be really hard to listen back to, (laughs) but you were using it as, I mean, there it is. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to come out with it because another big part of this discussion is that the people who use these words most are women and young people and they have less status in society. And so we see that the way that women and young people talk is less intelligent. Because we think that they are less intelligent. And they're not. It's a completely legitimate way to talk. Sometimes it's important to think about who you're judging for this and whether you're judging people with more status the same way. Because, and there have been observations of this, people like, for example, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, he would use filler words all the time. But he was a Supreme Court justice. So, of course, no one's going to judge him harshly or think that he's not smart because he's doing that. But if you are a lower status in society, you're going to be judged more harshly, which is why I bring it up when you said that someone responded to me speaking that way. I'm just going to say. (laughs) Wow. And we learned that we see beautiful things as more pure and therefore having more moral standing. And that makes us more likely to protect them. And that's a problem for wildlife conservation, since endangered species all need protecting regardless of their beauty. And I wanted to mention that we covered one unusual way to protect so-called unappealing species back in May of 2020, which is funny memes. If you remember, Polish Internet users have taken to creating funny memes of the weird looking and endangered proboscis monkey. 
And a study found that people who saw those memes were more likely to contribute to funds to protect that species. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes. It's pretty funny. Memes to save the world. Absolutely. The writer for today's last story was Cameron Duke. Our managing editor is Ashley Hammer, who is also a writer and audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Have a great weekend. You know what I think is pretty beautiful? Our podcast. And certainly having a great moral standing, which means you should help us protect it by telling your friends all about it. I have a strange feeling they will very much thank you for it. And then along with them, you can join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. 